once we have taken reasonable, biblical, legitimate steps, we don't attempt to meet our physical needs contrary to what the Bible teaches. You know what Jesus is really saying here? And get this in your mind. Our souls are more important than our bodies. Welcome to The Word Unleashed with Tom Pennington. Tom is pastor-teacher at Countryside Bible Church in Southlake, Texas. Hello again, I'm Bill Wright, and today Tom has part two of his current series titled Power Over Temptation. Do you struggle with temptation? We're looking at the three root temptations that all believers experience, even Jesus Christ did. Last time, you were reminded that though Jesus had the same desires that we have, desire for food or sleep and so forth, Jesus remained absolutely free from sin. While the temptations that Christ experienced were not sinful desires from within, they were external sources, all attempting to thwart God's ultimate plan of redemption. And today, Tom will examine in greater detail the first of these three core root temptations, that being the temptation to satisfy the desires of the body outside of the will of God and how to combat these sinful desires. Let's join our teacher now on The Word Unleashed. And Satan says to Christ, if you are the Son of God. Now, some teachers make much of the word if here. Don't make too much of it, and let me tell you why. In Greek, there are several different conditional constructions, that is, if-then statements. And the grammar tells you what the meaning is. The grammar tells you what the speaker means by what he says. One of those Greek constructions does insinuate that the condition is very unlikely. Well, if you're the Son of God, and I seriously doubt it, but that's not the construction that's used here. It's used, for example, in John 5, where Jesus says, if you believe Moses, and it's clear you do not, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. There, the grammar, the Greek grammar, tells you that Jesus intends to say, this isn't happening. You don't truly believe Moses. But that's not the conditional construction that Matthew uses. Here, Matthew uses a conditional construction that assumes the condition to be true. The speaker may believe it or he may not. The language doesn't really tell us. The construction doesn't tell us. We don't know, based on what we read here, if Satan was convinced that Jesus was the Son of God or if he was trying to raise a doubt about it. But the language does tell us that he was assuming this to be true. So we could translate Satan's words something like this. If you are the Son of God, and I assume that's true, command that these stones become loaves. In the other account, he says this stone, apparently pointing down to a particular rock, says make this one bread, make it a loaf. That's the temptation. Jesus would eventually use his power to produce food for others, but here Satan is inviting Jesus to perform his very first miracle to satisfy his own bodily appetites. And here's the key. To do so would have for Jesus have been contrary to the will of God. Who had led him into the wilderness, into temptation, and into this fast? The Spirit of God. It wasn't the Spirit's time. This wasn't 
the will of God. Now, when you look at Jesus' temptations, understand that in one sense, Jesus' temptations were unique. His temptations took paths ours will never go. Let me see a show of hands. Anyone here ever been tempted to turn stones into bread? Hasn't happened. We've never been tempted to jump from some high place with the assurance that God won't let us die. We've never been tempted to fall down and worship Satan so that we can have all the kingdoms of the world. Nobody here has ever faced those three specific temptations. But although in one sense they were unique, they were at the same time typical. Jesus faced temptations from all three of the same root sources we do. Jesus, and I need to be careful here, and I want you to stay with me, but it's important that you understand this. Jesus had the same non-sinful bodily desires we have. In his case, the temptations were external in the sense that they didn't originate from inside of him, but they came from outside of him. John Broadus writes, Our bodily appetites form the occasion of many of our severest temptations, yet these appetites are not sinful in and of themselves. Nothing wrong with desiring food when you're hungry. Nothing wrong with having the desire for marriage and the physical relationship in marriage. Nothing wrong with having the desire for sleep. Those are, those are God-given physical desires and appetites. But for us, temptations typically arise when some external circumstance awakens inside of us one of our internal sinful cravings, as James 1.14 puts it. Now, what's the root temptation here in this first temptation? What is it? What's the root temptation? It's essentially this. It's the temptation to satisfy the desires of the body outside the will of God. A temptation to satisfy the desires of the body outside the will of God. John Calvin writes, The nature of Adam, while he was still innocent, and reflected the brightness of the divine image, was liable to temptations. All the bodily affections or, or normal bodily desires, the non-sinful ones that exist in man, are so many opportunities which Satan seizes to tempt him. So just as Satan made his appeal to Eve on the basis of her physical desires, you remember, she saw that the tree was good for food. In the same way, he uses the physical appetites to appeal to us. So, when do we cross the line from a normal physical appetite into a sinful craving? In what way does satisfying the bodily appetites become a temptation to sin? Let me give you several of them. First of all, seeking the gratification of those normal human appetites in excess. It's sin to seek it in excess. Let me give you a couple of examples. Sleep is a normal desire that God has placed within the body. It's for the good and the maintenance of our bodies and our souls. We still don't know all that sleep does, but we know it's important. Those who sleep less than six hours a night, we're told, it will dramatically affect their health over time. Those who sleep more than eight hours, that also will affect their health over time. There is a window of sleep that is good and right for the human body. To do it in excess, however, the Bible calls laziness. The Proverbs are filled with warnings about the man who is hinged to his bed. So seeking the gratification of normal human desires in excess means temptation to sin and sin itself. Same thing is true with food. Nothing wrong with a desire for food. It's a good thing. God made us to eat, to sustain life. And apparently, even for enjoyment. 
Paul refers to the fact that all food has been given to us, all things have been given to us to enjoy. The feasts of the Old Testament weren't just about satisfying the physical needs of the body. And apparently, even when we don't have to eat in heaven, there will be food. We talked about that when we talked about heaven and the new heavens and the new earth. So food and the desire for food is a good thing. But in excess, it becomes gluttony. I'm glad this isn't Thanksgiving that I'm teaching on this. A second way that satisfying the body becomes sin is when we seek to gratify its desires by means contrary to God's Word. For example, we try to satisfy the normal desire for food by stealing. Nothing wrong with the desire for food. We need to satisfy that desire. We need to eat. But to steal to satisfy that desire is wrong. To satisfy the normal desire for physical intimacy in marriage with a member of the opposite sex, but outside of marriage or through pornography. This is gratifying a God-given normal desire in an ungodly way. It's turning the bodily appetites into a temptation to sin. Third way that satisfying the body becomes sin is seeking to gratify these physical, these normal physical desires in ways contrary to God's original design and intention. For example, God didn't design our bodies to gorge ourselves with food and then force ourselves to throw up, in, as is true with bulimia. This is not the normal desire. This is the normal desire gone amok. This is the misuse of the design of food and the desire for food. The same thing would be true sexually with homosexuality and pedophilia and bestiality. Those things are perversions of the normal. They're not simply seeking gratification of the normal desires by means contrary to God's Word. They're a perversion of the normal desire into something else, something against the design. A fourth way is by seeking gratification to the point that it becomes idolatry. And that can be true, by the way, with any of these first three, and often is. I'm just including as a fourth sort of catch-all point, when the fulfillment of that desire becomes more important to you than obeying God, it has become an idol. Whether it's the desire for marriage, or whether it's a woman's desire for children, even good desires can become idolatry, normal desires that God has placed within the human heart. Every temptation you will face in regard to the body's appetites will follow one of those paths. And Jesus, from the outside, was tempted to satisfy the normal bodily appetites in a way contrary to God's will. So how did he respond? Let's look at the biblical response. But he answered, verse 4 says, and said, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Jesus' response to this root temptation teaches us how to respond. But folks, let me urge you, don't jump to the wrong conclusions when you read this verse. You might be tempted to look at this passage and conclude something like this. Well, Jesus quoted Scripture in the face of temptation. Jesus overcame temptation. Therefore, if I memorize a few passages that touch on my temptation and quote them when I'm being tempted, I'll overcome temptation. Well, there are elements of truth to that. But there are unfortunately too many Christians who have done just this and failed miserably and blamed the Bible or blamed Jesus' example. 
Merely memorizing Scripture and quoting it will not ensure that you overcome temptation. In fact, that point is made right here in this very context. Satan memorized a portion of Scripture and quotes it to Jesus. And he quotes it not as a way to overcome temptation, but as a way what? To create temptation. The Bible misused can even be a source of temptation. And certainly misused, it won't help you deal with temptation. Scripture, when wrongly understood and or misapplied, can actually be a source of temptation. So, what does Jesus' response teach us? Preliminarily, we can say this, a proper response to temptation comes from the Scripture. That's clear. And for Scripture to be available for a right response means that we must have committed it in some sense to memory. But let's get more specific. How does Jesus' response to the temptations that come in the area of the appetites of the body help us to respond? Well, notice that Jesus quotes from Deuteronomy. In fact, all three of Jesus' responses to Satan come from Deuteronomy chapters 6 to 8. And understand that Jesus knows the context of each of these passages. Undoubtedly, over these 40 days, he's been meditating on the Scripture, praying. He spent 30 years understanding the text of Scripture, So, for us to understand what Jesus is saying here, we have to get up with the context as well. So, turn back with me to Deuteronomy chapter 8. Deuteronomy chapter 8. The context, the setting of this book is that Israel has wandered in the wilderness for 40 years, and all those older than 20 when they left Egypt have died, except for Joshua and Caleb. But the wilderness wandering is now over, For a couple of months, Israel camps on the west side of the Jordan, opposite Jericho. And there, the old man Moses delivers a series of messages to them. That's what we have in the book of Deuteronomy. They are to prepare for the conquest and the division of the land ahead. And Moses essentially draws out of the spiritual lessons of the 40 years of wilderness wandering and out of the law, giving it a second time, Deutero, that's second, Namas, that's Greek for law, the second law, he explains again what God's expectations are and what they can learn from all that's happened. Now, look at chapter 8, verse 1. All the commandments that I am commanding you today you shall be careful to do, that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land which the Lord swore to give to your forefathers. You shall remember all the way which the Lord your God has led you in the wilderness these 40 years, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. He humbled you and let you be hungry and fed you with manna which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you understand that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word or everything that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord. That's the context, Jesus quotes. Now that you know the context... You can see that behind Jesus' response were several important premises. And let me just hurry through these with you. First of all, the Scripture is both authoritative and sufficient for dealing with the spiritual issues of this life. Matthew 4 4 says, But Jesus answered and said, It is written. Reminds me of a passage we'll get to in Ephesians 6. that says, Take the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. That is our weapon William Hendrickson writes, For Jesus, the Old Testament Scriptures were the ultimate touchstone of the truth for life and doctrine, the final court of appeal for the reason. Leon Morris writes, For Jesus to have found a passage in the Bible that bears on the current problem is to end all discussion. The Scripture is where you need to go. That much is true. Number two, 
God is sovereign over our physical circumstances. That lies behind this passage that Jesus quotes. Look at verse 1. The Lord will give, swore to give to your forefathers. You shall be careful to do these things that you may live and multiply and that you may go in and possess the land which the Lord swore to give to your forefathers. The Lord's in charge here, and Christ understood that. The circumstances in which you found yourself in the wilderness, the circumstances in which you find yourself living in the promised land are both under the control of God. Number three, God is the one who provides every legitimate need. That's what Moses is saying here. God is the one who cared for you. He's the one who met your needs with manna in some cases. And when you go into the land, He's the one that'll give it to you. He's the one that'll meet the needs you have. God is the one who meets our needs. Number four, and this is important, God at times chooses to deprive His children of the normal fulfillment of our physical or their, spirit, their physical desires. Look at verse three. He humbled you and let you be hungry. Why? Well, that brings us to number five. When God chooses to deprive us of the physical needs of the body, He has great spiritual ends for our good. They're given right here in verse, verses 2 and 3. First of all, humbling our hearts. He, he did this that He might humble you Grace comes only where there's humility. This is for our benefit. He humbles us in reminding us that we can't depend on our own resources. But God has a second purpose, and that's testing our hearts. Look at what he says in verse 2. He humbled you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep His commandments or not. Testing your loyalty and your obedience. God will sometimes let us go without the needs of the body being met to test our hearts to see if we're going to be loyal to Him and if we're going to be obedient to Him in spite of whether or not those needs are met, just as He did with Israel. But He also has in mind, when He deprives us of those good things, instructing our minds and the question is, with what great lesson? Notice verse 3. That He might make you understand that. Here it comes. He did all of this so that you would know something. Here comes the main point, and this is what Jesus quotes from the Septuagint translation to Satan. Man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by everything that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord. Notice this passage makes two points, a negative one and a positive one. The negative one, man does not live by bread alone. Jesus is not denying the importance of bread to life. Rather, he is denying its exclusive importance. And the positive point he makes is man lives by everything that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord. This is a very strong adversative. But, on the other hand, on the absolute other end of the spectrum, but rather... What sustains man's life is every word that goes through God's mouth. Now, let's see if we can summarize this and make it helpful for us. The point that Jesus embraced and believed and that he responded to Satan with, that helped him overcome the temptation to satisfy the desires of the body contrary to God's will, went like this. Jesus essentially said this to Satan. Like Israel, I am clearly in the wilderness and without my physical needs being met at God's will. This is God's will. 
I will not pursue the satisfaction of my physical needs contrary to God's will because even if I'm without those needs being met, if God chooses, he can intervene and meet my needs even supernaturally as he did in providing manna for Israel. This is what Jesus embraced and believed. As he was so hungry that his body was about to go into the final throes of starvation, Jesus embraced this reality. I'm here by God's will, deprived of these things by God's will, and God knows I'm here, and God is powerful enough to meet these needs, even supernaturally if he chooses, and so I will not cross the line and satisfy them contrary to his will and purpose. John Calvin writes, God, who now employs bread for our support, will enable us whenever he pleases to live by any other means. God doesn't need bread or any of the other ways our physical desires are met. He can meet them however he chooses. This doesn't mean that we can't take reasonable biblical steps to see that our physical needs are met. It doesn't mean there's anything wrong with praying for marriage or for a child or for food or housing, housing or clothing. Doesn't mean that we shouldn't diligently seek employment if we're out of work. Doesn't mean that we shouldn't work to have our needs met. Doesn't mean that we shouldn't pursue relationships with other Christians if we want to be married. This means that once we have taken reasonable, biblical, legitimate steps, we don't attempt to meet our physical needs contrary to what the Bible teaches. You know what Jesus is really saying here? And get this in your mind. Our souls are more important than our bodies. We don't think of ourselves as two-part beings very often. We think of ourselves as me. It's me. And we're all one part. But that's not what the Scriptures teach. There is the physical part of you, and there is the immaterial, eternal part of you, your soul, the real you. And your soul is more important than your body. Get a grip on that. That's what Jesus was saying to Satan, and that's what will help us overcome temptation. The way Paul puts it is like this. 1 Corinthians 9.27, I discipline my body and make it my slave so that after I preach to others, I myself might not be disqualified. Paul says, I lead my body around by the nose. I make it obey me. You understand that you have to come to grips with the fact that your soul is more important than your body? God may choose to have us go without our physical needs being met for a short time or for a lifetime, but we have to remember and remind ourselves when that temptation comes what Jesus did. My soul is more important than my body and its desires. And God, if I've done what I reasonably can and I'm still without those needs being met, God knows that. I'm here by His will. And if He desired, He could send manna from heaven. He's done it before. But I will not cross the line and disobey Him to satisfy those desires. Now the verse that Jesus quotes has massive ramifications for us. Listen carefully and I'm done. Jesus doesn't quote a verse that was only good for the Messiah. It says, man shall not live by bread alone. 
Jesus purposefully chose a verse, a concept in responding to Satan. He quotes a text that's intended for every one of us. It's applicable for every human being. You see, Jesus overcame temptation. Stay with me. Jesus overcame temptation with resources that are open to every one of us. You too can overcome the temptation to satisfy the bodily desires outside of the will of God if you will come to grips with what our Lord saw in Deuteronomy 8, that our souls are more important than our bodies. And I will not satisfy what my body wants, to use Paul's language, I will make it my slave. And if God wants to intervene miraculously, He can do so, but otherwise I'll wait for Him to act. But Jesus is the one who did it. He overcame it. Glover says, with every tree of the garden except one for food, Adam fell, with desert stones mocking his hunger, the second Adam conquered. That's Tom Pennington here on The Word Unleashed with part two of a series titled Power Over Temptation. Join us next time for part three. We'll see you then. And friend, join Tom Pennington in Southlake, Texas, February 18th through the 20th for the 2022 Countryside Bible Church Conference, Our Glorious Hope. Tom welcomes Steve Lawson, H.B. Charles, Philip DeCourcy, and more to remind you of the eternal hope of heaven that is ours in Christ and to spur you on to live in light of that reality today. Visit thewordunleashed.org for more information and registration links to the conference. The Word Unleashed is made possible because of the prayers and financial gifts of individuals like you. Please consider partnering with us. You can find out how to do that by visiting thewordunleashed.org. Again, that's thewordunleashed.org. And now for Tom Pennington and the entire team, I'm Bill Wright. Thanks for listening to The Word Unleashed, exalting God's glory, explaining God's truth.